I am a kind of person who cannot sit on my frustration and anger for very long. From Steppenwolf Theater Company in Chicago, Illinois. We could just show them what we can do. Let's just do that because this is irritating. Let's stop talking. This is Half Hour. Hello, friends. We are back again. Episode 11 of Half Hour. What? What? Uh, My name is Cliff Chamberlain. I'm joined by two amazing people. This is Audrey Francis. (laughs) And this is Caroline Neff. And Caroline, um, I'm not sure how she found the time to sit down and talk with you because she seems to be one of the busiest and most productive artists and activists and people in Chicago, but M. Joy Gavino sat down and found time to talk to you and talk to us, and um, it was fantastic. I feel so lucky. I, I really was. I was, I was listening to the uh, conversation a couple of days ago, and as she was talking about all of the things that she does, it really struck me that she kind of is, in a much less annoying way, the Ryan Seacrest of Chicago <laughs> theater. <laughs> She hosts things. She produces things. She acts in things. She's just she's kind of all over, and everybody really loves her. And I feel, um, I feel really lucky that she that she found the time to sit down to sit down and talk with us. I've been lucky to be in lots of different rooms with her, um, never in a production, but um, because she gives us so many chances to work with her, whether it be um, Barrel of Monkeys or at the Eric and Jesse. Uh, and everyone you know show or she's worked with my other theater company the house before and um she's just sort of everywhere so you have a good chance of being um inspired by her and she's always the most and she even said this i think in the interview um annoyingly optimistic for other people right just like you really (laughs) get that from her it's so much fun to be around her i think there's something about Joy that makes her so special. And after hearing this conversation with you two, Caroline, I was able to to really pinpoint what it is for me. And it's it's very rare when to to see someone or to know someone who says, hey, there's a problem and this is what's missing and this is what's needed. And then they do the thing. Mm. And she and she just does that. And, and and I think so many times we're surrounded by people who just identify the problem and even go as far as to identify what the solution could be, but maybe don't put the solution on their own backs to fix it. And that is what she does time and time again. And can I just say one thing about that show that Caroline and MJ and I got to do together? There was a day on stage in You Got Older where I... Something happened with Caroline and I, and we were breaking. We were not able to get it together on stage, and we could not stop laughing. And it was supposed to be a very devastating scene. During the and show? During the oh, show. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. Okay. And I looked at M-Joy, and M-Joy looked at Caroline and I with this beautiful combination of, like, I, I love that you're having fun, and I will not stoop to your level. And got us right back on track. And got us right back on track. Wow. Well, (laughs) I'm going to get us on track and get this interview started because uh, everyone needs to hear what she has to say because she's that type of person. So let's hear the interview. 
Welcome back, everyone. This is your half hour call. Please sign in if you've not already done so. This is half hour. The house is about to open. Half hour, please. You moved to Chicago from Seattle, right? That's correct. Yeah. And was that, did you go to school in Seattle? I did. I did everything in Seattle until I was about uh, 22. Uh, so I didn't leave Seattle at all, except for like wow. family vacations. Yeah. Wow. That's so interesting to me because I feel like you are such a person that is always bebopping around. And I, I mean, I just, I feel like I never see you at like still full rest. <laughs> yeah. I have that, that. That's the thing is like, as a human, I would rather just stay in one place. But mm -hmm. like, um, I mean, as you know, you just follow the work and you, yeah. you follow whoever will have me. Of course. Um, if it were up to me, I would just be snuggled with my dog on my couch and then have people come to me so I would never leave the one room. Which you're royalty, is yes. what you're saying. Exactly. You have royal blood. Yes. And you and there and therefore you should be treated that. <laughs> you understand me. I'm so glad. Yes. I do. I do. I'm your <laughs> humble servant. Um how did you find yourself in Chicago from Seattle? It's so weird. It's so weird because I I actually thought I would never leave Seattle. I mean, the city itself is so incredible. You're by the ocean. You can take a $2 ferry and see whales, you know, on your day off. And so much, so many of the Gavino clan, my family is there. Um, and uh, when I was in college, the Seattle theater scene was just incredible. And amazingly, it was kind of considered the next Chicago when I was going to school. And so even then, even when I was in college and I didn't actually think I could <laughs> make a living in theater, I was looking at Chicago like, if I ever wanted to do theater anywhere else other than Seattle, I'd want to go there because it's just more of what I like here. I didn't want to leave, but if I had to, I'd go to Chicago. And then I met a boy, uh, and that boy asked me to marry him, and that was the same year that he also got a job in Chicago theater. Um, and so we magically ended up in Chicago. Wow. Yeah. You wear more hats than I think anybody else that I know, both personally and professionally, and you somehow managed to juggle all those things. And I definitely want to touch on all of them because... You are an actor, you are an activist, you are a casting director, you're the associate artistic director at the Gift Theater, but you also um, founded and run the Chicago Inclusion Project. Um, and I would love to just hear about the, the beginnings of that, how that thought crossed your mind, how it came to fruition. So do you mind talking just a little bit about what the Chicago Inclusion Project is? Maybe I can start with how we started, which was, it was just going to be a simple reading. Before, like, even before I turned equity, but when, especially when I turned equity, um, which was a difficult decision to do in Chicago, um, as, as a young woman and as a young woman of color, it was a really difficult, I really didn't want to turn equity. And I knew that when I did, the jobs would dry up, which it did. And when it dried up, I had moments where 
I was looking around and realizing that the only people who were hiring me were people who were probably just interested in my ethnicity, not all the time, but a lot of the time. And even before I turned equity, actually, to be honest. Um, and, you know, other other marginalized artists like myself, we would we would talk about this constantly, powerless, um, at the back of bars, in dressing rooms, just muttering to ourselves like there's nothing we can do. This is just this is this is the way it is. And I'll just I'll always be called in for the nurse. I'll always be called in for the terrorist. I'll always be called in for for this. I'll never get to work with you unless it's in Christmas Carol, you know, and uh, just frustrated and angry all the time. And I'm a kind of person who cannot sit on my frustration and anger for very long. I have to funnel it into something. And so those conversations started to fester and fester and fester. And it kind of turned into, well, we're tired of talking about it with each other. We don't really want to talk about it with artistic leaders. A lot of the times because people were scared they wouldn't get work, right? You know, and we, we could do those panel discussions. We could, we could, you know, have a round table where we're like, well, how do we solve racism and how, you know, and then pat ourselves on the back and walk away. Or we could just show them what we can do. And let's just do that because this is irritating. Let's stop talking. <laughs> so, so I, I, I was friends uh, with my first teacher, then mentor, then friend, uh, Michael Patrick Thornton. And I knew he had this theater company called The Gift. And I, I went to him and I said, hey, would The Gift put this reading on? I had this idea. I was, I'm hoping you can be a part of it, but like, I wanna just get every actor that I have a talent crush on and put them in a play together. All these people who have never worked together before and they don't have to play stereotypes. They just get to play what they've always wanted to play, what they've always dreamed of playing, but that, that, that they weren't ever able to because they weren't led into the room, you know? And so Mike, of course, is, is huge on this idea of inclusion and accessibility. He's like, that's a beautiful idea. I won't do it. And I was like, oh, cool. He's like, I'll help you do it, but you should do it. And I was like, but you have a theater company and I don't, okay. So that's kind of where it started was, I'm a fangirl of so many Chicago theater actors, and I wanted to put them on stage together to play in an American classic. What was the play? It was uh, The Time of Your Life by William Soroyan, yeah, yeah. which uh, I know Steppenwolf did an incredible production with. And, you know, we, we thought about a lot of different plays, but we knew we wanted a big ensemble show. And... And I, I loved it when I read it in college and I reread it and I was like, this is about the American dream. Like there is, there is probably not a better show to, to do this with. Um, and there were very few um, uh, ethnic specific specificities in the character breakdown, which was kind of going to be my point, which is, you know, it says this person is a dreamer, this person is a dancer, this person is a whatever. And that could look and sound like so many different things. And you could actually do that with many, many classic contemporary works in, in the canon. And I knew to pitch this idea to, to the Chicago theater population, to the gatekeepers, it had to be excellent. 
And in order for it to be excellent, it had to have the range of talent that I knew we had in Chicago. Um, I wanted Barbara Robertson. I wanted Alana Arenas. I wanted Mike Thornton. But I also wanted these these non-union actors who I've worked with, who I've been in the room with, who were fearless, who who have just so much talent like spilling out of them that that they would infect everybody around them. And I wanted them in it too. But to do that, we needed to partner with Equity. Equity, I assumed, would be on board with this, uh, would happily just help us out in every way. They looked at the cast list that we wanted to have and they said, uh, cool, so that'll be $3,000 for one reading. For one night. For one night. For one night. And I think the reason was, A, we wanted to do it in a theater because the point was we had to see all of these bodies on stage together. Um, We also uh, wanted to take donations so that we could do this again. Um, And we also wanted to invite press. And I I guess with those stipulations, those three things meant um, this is the contract that they could give us. And so... We did one of those um, uh, crowdsourced fundraisers, and I was just like, I don't, we're not going to be able to, we wanted to raise at least 5000 just for some cushion. And um, so we just asked on Facebook, and we said, look, we're just trying to change the stage picture in Chicago, because we're tired of feeling this way. We're tired of being separated from each other. We're, we're tired of our audiences being separated. We're tired of people not being able to be in the same room together because of economic status or gender identity or, or physical ability. This art form should allow for everyone to be in the same room. And that was our point. And it was phenomenal because the people who were sending us money were people who could not, these people couldn't afford to give us that money. We were raising funds from actors who weren't in the place to give us what they were giving us and audience members who weren't in, in the place to give us what they were giving us. But they wanted that stage picture changed too. And when we realized that, when we saw all the money coming in, when we, when we had to shift from the upstairs tiny theater at VG because we doubled by... 200% and moved to the downstairs space the day of the reading, we realized this is something that people are hungry for. And, and then when we realized that, we're like, well, we have to actually keep going and we have to push this further because it can't just be a reading. It can't just be coming from us. It can't just be produced by actors. We realized after that moment that the next step was partnering with theater companies and talking to artistic leaders and asking them, hey, what's up? What are you going to do? And then as, you know, as we showed them with our first reading, hey, look at what these actors can do. We would, with each theater company that we were working with, show them what our process was. And not in a didactic way, because if they signed up with us, they knew what they were getting. They knew what our agenda was. But a lot, of, a lot of it was, I'm going to introduce you to some actors that you absolutely should know because 
they haven't been on your radar because you haven't been looking for them, but guess what? They're here and they're actually perfect for this show. And, and we tried to work with theaters who were open to the idea, um, but also we said, pick a show that you would put in your season next year. And, and we'd plant that little seedling in their head. And then we would help them program a reading that was as accessible as possible. Pay what you can tickets, closed captioning. And uh, with every reading, we learned more and more. And they learned more and more about what, what an inclusive theatrical experience could be. And so that's, that's really the origins of it. And then from there, it's just kind of like, what else does our community need? And then we would shift and pivot to the training programs and to, to meetings with artistic directors and to uh, talks with, with college students. And, you know, um, it's, it's, it's ever evolving. Just hearing that, hearing that origin story, some of which I knew a little bit about, um, but it feels to me so much like you enjoy as a human being, where it's like, hey, there's a need. Can it be met? How can I meet it? And, and, and your ability to bring things forward like that. And so I guess what I'm curious about is where do you see the future of Chicago Inclusion Project? And how would you say that its mission statement has shifted in the last few years? Oh, man. Um, it, it, it's such a hard question because, you know, like we, we it's not even a joke. We, we talk about all the time how our goal of the Chicago Inclusion Project is for us not to have to exist. Do you know what I mean? It's like it's like oncologist. We'd love to put ourselves out of business. Right, right. Yeah. Ideally, we know that's not going to happen. We know that like the things that we're working towards, we're probably oh, this, not to be a downer, but I'm not going to see a lot of what I want to see in my lifetime, right? Um, but but what I want to work towards, and what what has shifted in 2020, I can I can speak definitely to this moment is that we're realizing that our complicity in white supremacy, right? We're, our, we're complicit just because we're in theater we, and live in America. So uh, we're born into this already, this system. Yeah. And the way Inclusion Project, I mean, let's be honest, the way M. Joy Gavino started working as an artist and as an advocate was to try to bring people who didn't necessarily see to my level what I wanted them to see and 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 just reach in and bring them up to this idea and and it was a lot of emotional labor it was a lot of uh pieces of my heart that I desperately wanted to give but it costs me so much and it costs so many of us who do this kind of work so much because it's so deeply personal. Um, and I'm looking at that cost in 2020 in, you know, now, now people are like having this aha moment of like, oh, you were hurting? Oh, my bad. Oh, let's, let's figure out how to fix that. Fine. Cool. Was telling you that 10 years ago. Fine. But instead of putting all of our energies and effort into bringing those people 
up to our level so that we can finally have that conversation and to push them into action, pivoting now to caring for the marginalized artists that we've been trying to uplift, but putting more of our attention on them and care for them. And what do you need? And yes, we we will try to educate the people who need that education and and provide resources if they need it. But we need to, it needs to be 50-50 and it wasn't before. And that goes for me as, as an individual person. Like I can't give you my time and energy the way I was able to five years ago, the way I was able to two years ago. I can't. And I don't want to see people who look like me or have gone through the hardships similar to me to go. I don't want anyone to have to go through that anymore. And so we have to start healing each other. And, and that work can, can happen alongside the strides that need to happen with the gatekeepers who really need to catch up to the conversation. We can help that, but not, not while costing us ourselves. All right, everyone, 15 minutes. 15 minutes, please, to the top of the show. 15 minutes. Were you working on Chicago Inclusion Project before you started working as a casting director? It's so weird. I just realized everything happened in 2015. Like everything was building up to 2015, but I got named gift casting director officially in 2015. We launched Inclusion Project in 2015, and I was also unofficially casting for Remy Bumpo in 2015. Mm-hmm. I... I just kind of got shoved into that. Um, I was kind of like dabbling in in it like a couple years before with like some consultations and here's a list of um, minority actors since you've never met them before and blah, blah, blah. Um, And then just started to get paid for it that year, Um, which I think is no coincidence, but like it all happened at once. Where... Like, where do you find your inspiration for casting? Like, when you're when when you're sitting down with a script, where does your brain begin from? Like, does it does it begin with a conversation with a director? Do you come in with some sort of like strong ideas? Is it? I don't know. How does that work? Oh gosh, yeah. Well, but but you know that there's like a uh, five million possibilities, right? And so I'll read the script, but usually I'll have a conversation with the director first, just so that I don't go completely bonkers because because really unless it says this person has to be this age and this gender and has to be able to do a cartwheel and has like which they rarely have that specific a thing uh so it usually starts with a conversation with the director just because i also want to get an idea of the world they're trying to build um i've also been lucky because i've worked on a lot of new work so also i want to talk to the playwright and and get in their brain and then sometimes, and I'm sure you do this too, I still don't go stay within their boxes. You know what I mean? I was just like, cool, you think you want this actor because you've only known that actor, but have you met so-and-so? And and also I think you and I and, and a few other wonderful casting directors in Chicago have this, this uh, other gift of having been in ensembles with some of these actors. So we know not only the integrity of what they bring to a rehearsal room, but also the things that directors haven't seen them do, we know they can do. And so I try to give as many 
if if there's not a lot of time, uh, a limited amount of options, but as many options as I can possibly give per that casting breakdown. Like if it says this, could it also mean this, this, and this? Like what are your givens? Um, and then from there, I just try to show them Chicago as much as I possibly can. And, um, and even then, I always have the, oh, I could have called in so-and-so, you know, that moment. But yeah. Yeah. If only we could cast every play 10 times over. And I can a lot of the time. Right. And I still, and I still feel like, oh man, we're not quite, we're not getting everybody in here that we wish we could, we could, we could have. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Now I definitely want to talk to you about your acting career because it is one of the most versatile and interesting resumes because you do new plays, classical plays, musicals. I, I I don't know that there's a genre of theater that you have not or could not do. You were in the musical working. Oh gosh, yeah. With with so many incredible actors, which is a musical adaptation of a Studs Terkel oral history, right? Mm-hmm. So then you did Iphigenia and all this, and you've mm-hmm. done a number of the Greek classical plays down at the core. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, you and I have gotten to work on contemporary plays like You Got Older by Claire Barron and, and 4,000 Miles by Amy Herzog. But then y- y- you're also such a sort of brilliant shepherd of new work as an actor. I don't know how you look at a Greek text and then how you look at You Got, yeah, you got Older and you're like, I feel confident in both of these. <laughs> Because I look at both of those and I'm like, I should hire a coach. You are assuming that I'm confident at anything ever, which I'm not. I am not. Um, So I approach both of those things with uh, extreme anxiety, um, but the same anxiety, actually. Um, And, you know, a lot of... uh, the, the Greek text that we were working with was was highly contemporary contemporized um, by you know the the adaptation, but you know I am heart led like that is that's kind of the the through line with all of my stuff, and I think you know back when I thought I was gonna do musicals and and, and I'll be honest the only reason I I sing at all and I do musicals at all is because I thought that was the only way Asians could get on stage when I was younger, which it looked like it was. Um, and so, uh, or the Joe Club, which I was in. Um, but, you know, I learned, I taught myself how to sing because Leia Salonga sang, and mm-hmm. that was the only Asian I knew who did, who was on stage. And so I uh, learned how to incorrectly belt, and I got myself into musicals, and I, I did that out of, desperation and necessity but but I think and you've done musical musicals or musical type things I've seen you do it but there is something that lends itself to things like classical text or things like heightened language that um they all help each other out right um that if you if you're lucky enough to have a a smart dramaturg and 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 director you can you can be heart led, and and if you trust the text, the rhythms are there, um, and the musical stuff just kind of helped with that um, as kind of a muscle memory. Attention, everyone! This is your five minute call. Five minutes, please. Five minutes to the top of the show. Five minutes. Now, you've listened to the podcast. Oh yes. So I would love to ask you. Um, 
as we do with all of our guests. Mm-hmm. Um, what does your half hour look like? Yeah. I mean, my after half hour will depend on the show and the role and what it needs. Um, but, uh, as you know, I usually make myself a Spotify playlist, um, usually like titled what's on Kathy's iPad or iShuffle or whatever. And, and, and just kind of like music that will get me in the mood of my character or to the starting emotional point of that character. Um, and also, um, because I'm socially awkward, it will also, uh, prevent me from having to have small talk with people that I don't always want to small talk. And that it'll also depend on if I don't have that, that much pressure on myself in the show, I'll, I'll be a chatty Kathy sometimes, but, um, usually earbuds in my ears blasting, let's be honest, Brandy Carlisle. Are you ready for a lightning round? Oh, yeah. Okay. What is your favorite Steppenwolf production you've ever seen? Shoot. Oh, can I say two? I'll say the first one that came to my head. You were there. Um, I did school at Steppenwolf um, the year that uh, August Osage was going on tour to Australia. And Amy Morton was one of my Meisner teachers. And they they invited our class and then some special guests like yourself to come watch their rehearsal at on at Yandorf. And so there was no set, no costumes. It was just the actors saying the text, like, you know, a few feet away from us. And I just couldn't, I didn't know what to do with myself. I couldn't believe that was my teacher. I couldn't believe that all of the things that I'd been learning for the past 10 weeks was like happening in front of me like 10 million times over. And, and I knew how lucky I was to be in that room. Um, it's that, that moment was just, it was everything. Agreed. Yeah. Agreed. But then also, um, brother size was also, um, when I first ugly snotted in public. What is the toughest experience you've had as an actor? Working at the Broadway Playhouse. That was that that was the show that turned me equity. Um, it was the only commercial run I've ever done, and it was hard in every single sense that it could be hard. What is your most prized piece of play memorabilia? Um, so it wasn't technically in the play, but you know that I inherited a couple of deer from the marketing campaign of You Got Older, and we named them Sparkle and Heart, and they are in my apartment, and they're always watching, and I love them so much. What? is your favorite moment of any live theatrical experience, whether you're performing or not? Oh, God. That's such a good, hard question. I... Did you see Hit the Wall? Yeah, a few times. The riot scene? I've seen it in every iteration. I saw it at the garage. I saw it at Theater on the Lake. I saw it in New York. I saw it when it went back to Wit, and I saw it uh, at the anniversary last year when when they did it uh, at the 1700. 
And every single time they get to that riot scene and my heart stops and I can't breathe. And I'm so happy that I do theater and that I know those beautiful people that worked on that piece and that moment. But like, it's everything that that riot scene is everything that theater should be. I loved it so much. Oh, such an incredible play. <sighs> uh, what job didn't you get that broke your heart? <sighs> um... I, I uh, auditioned for Into the Woods back when I thought I could do musicals in Seattle, and I was cast as Cinderella. I am an alto. I am a comic alto, and I wanted to be Little Red, and I could kill that role today, even though I'm way too old for it. I know how that role should go. They cast me as Cinderella, which was very nice. It's a very nice role. I'm not a soprano. The reviews dragged me, and I was like, of course I'm bad. I'm not a soprano. Um, so, like, yeah, that one still stings. Still uh, a little bitter about that. <laughs> uh, what? This is, a, ugh, this is such a good question for you, Joy. What is the last song you listened to? Oh. Oh. Have you listened to Bethany Thomas's new album? Not yet. Oh my gosh, Caroline, do it tonight. I think I will. There's, I mean, there's so many good songs on there, but there's this one song. Did you ever have that song when you're a teenager where you play it and you know it's going to make you cry and then you yes. just like play it? At, I mean, surfacing Sarah McLaughlin, like the whole album, like you just, yeah, that was me. But the, it has been replaced by a song called The Waves on Bethany Thomas's new album. And it's so beautiful, but also the lyrics are just so poignant and so right now that like, I'll just, I'll play it knowing that it'll make me cry and just have the most wonderful catharsis, um, which I had earlier this afternoon. Who is your favorite writer? You know, it changes depending on the week. Um, right now, Samantha Irby is giving me a lot of joy. Um, I'm rereading Needy because I've I've read all of her other books at this point, but um, Samantha Irby right now. What is your favorite place to unwind in Chicago? Well, in the before times, it was the olive oil and vinegar aisle of Mariano's, you know, um, but it's not so relaxing right now. Um, so I would say the gazebo in Wells Park particularly if you happen to be there when a string quartet is playing or rehearsing, which I did twice. Twice they were there when I was there, and I was like, this is so happy-making. It's great. It's like, it's like when you accidentally catch the holiday train. Exactly. <laughs> it's exactly like that. <laughs> what animal do you most identify with? <laughs> um, oh, God, I even knew this was coming. Um, oh, okay. Have you ever Googled animals dressed as other animals? No. Okay, first of all, it's, it's a very controversial thing because either you will love it like I do or you will be offended that I told you to Google it, but you will feel one of those things. Um, there is a picture somewhere on the internet of a dachshund dressed as a lobster. So already an, a highly strong, awkward animal dressed in something so wrong. And I think it's also a little too big for him. And I feel like I saw that picture and I was like, I know how that kid feels. That is M-Joy in a nutshell. 
All right, final question here. If you were a character in a play, what would your character's description be? Oh, I love this question. Um, okay. Everybody's ate. Ate in Tagalog is older sister. So everybody's ate. Um, annoyingly optimistic for everyone else except for her. Um, double jointed in all the wrong places. <laughs> Should have played Little Red Riding Hood. And- <laughs> Should have played Little Red Riding Hood and Into the Woods. Boom. All right, everyone, this is your Places Call. Places, please, for the top of the show. Have a wonderful show tonight. Places, please, places. And that's it for this episode of Half Hour, brought to you by Steppenwolf Theatre Company. Thanks for listening. And thanks again to our guest this week, M. Joy Gavino. To learn more about the Chicago Inclusion Project, check out their website at thechicagoinclusionproject.org. Half Hour is produced by Patrick Zockham, mixed and edited by Matthew Chapman. The theme music for Half Hour is by Rob Milburn and Michael Bodine. Today's stage manager was Michelle Medvin. Special thanks to Aaron Cook, Joel Mormon, Kara Henry, Jen Toe, and all the folks at Steppenwolf. Follow us on Twitter at Steppenwolf, T-H-T-R, or on Facebook and Instagram. And you can always get in touch by emailing halfhour at steppenwolf.org. Till next time, this is Audrey Francis, Cliff Chamberlain, and Caroline Neff. A lifetime to engage, half hour to places. 